Tonight we open our Bibles to Psalm 51, to Psalm 51, as you may have gathered from the prayer that was offered just a little bit ago, um, I've been preaching a series of sermons on assurance, that is, how can we know that we have been saved by God, and tonight is the fourth and the final one in that series, and we are considering specifically Psalm 51 verse 4. Psalm 51, verse 4, so when you read this passage, think which verse or what verses it's verse 4. If you're interested in thinking more about the doctrine of assurance, let me point you to the Westminster Confession of Faith and chapter 18. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 18. I'll read a portion of that in just a moment, but first we read Psalm 51, hear the word of God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For you know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, for my mouth shall declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. This is the Word of God. The question tonight is a simple one, and it is this, what if I don't feel assured? we expand that question a little bit. Are there times in your life where you're not sure? In fact, to put it a little more strongly, you really doubt that you're saved. If you would affirm that, that is true at times, this sermon is designed to help you in that struggle. And I want to tell you before I begin explaining Psalm 51, especially verse 4 to you, that you are not the first people to struggle with that question. In fact, it is such a common struggle in human life, and it is addressed addressed in the Bible in enough places, that the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 18, part 4, says the following. It's a little bit long, so (laughs) smile a little bit with me while I read this, and then I'll explain it very briefly. It says, true believers may have the assurance of their salvation in various ways shaken, diminished, 
and intermitted. That is, there may be times where it feels stronger or weaker. And this may be by negligence and preserving of it, or by falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit, or it may be by some sudden or vehement temptation, or it may be by God's withdrawing the light of His countenance and suffering even such fear of Him to walk into darkness and have no light. Yet true believers are never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived, and by the which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. Oh, if you heard that and you think, oh my word, what does that mean? Let me explain it very briefly to you. The section begins by saying true believers sometimes struggle with assurance of faith. Which means if you sometimes struggle with assurance of faith, it does not mean that you are not a believer. And it goes on to say there are a variety of reasons why a Christian might struggle with that sense of being certain that he or she belongs to the Lord. And the place it begins is with temptation and sin. And then it goes on to talk about other reasons beside temptation and falling into sin, why Christians might struggle with that sense of assurance. It may even be that confession says that God for a time withdraws that sense that we have in our heart that we belong to Him. It's very hard to understand why that would be true. But I want to note that because tonight's sermon is aimed at the larger and the more predominant reason why we struggle with assurance. That is, we struggle with a particular sin and fall into some temptation. And because of that, we are far from God, the opposite of what the Scripture says when it says, draw near to the Lord and He will draw near to you. But I want to note that there are other things that confession says or give as reasons why we might struggle with assurance. Lest in hearing this sermon, if you struggle with assurance, you think to yourself, it must be because I have some grievous sin in my life that is not confessed. Tonight I'm going to press you to ask whether that is true, but I want you to hear very clearly that the confession says there are other reasons as well. So listen to me and pay attention to Psalm 51 verse 4 but do not forget about what else the confession says. But tonight, as I have noted, I want to spend most of our time together thinking about the primary reason why we might struggle with assurance, and that is our sin, our temptation, and falling into a particular sin. I noted before we began reading Psalm 51 that I'd focus on verse 4, and I want to read that for you again. It says, against you, you only have I sinned. This is David speaking to God himself. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. To understand what David is saying, I have to read something that I neglected to read before we began reading the psalm. It's a subscript to Psalm 51. If you look in your Bibles, it says to the choir master, that is... Psalm 51 was designed to be a song when David 
Rather, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba, which places this psalm squarely in the context of 1 Samuel 11 and 12. And in order to understand verse 4 and the way in which sin and our giving into sin shakes our sense of assurance, I'm going to go back to 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 for just a moment. When chapter 11 opens, King David has consolidated his power. He is not running away from Saul any longer. No one is threatening David. In fact, in chapter 11, the chapter opens by saying, it was the time of year when kings go out to war. There is nothing exceptional, anything threatening to David at this point. Instead, David, you might say, is going about the routine of being the king. But in the first stage of what we read in chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel, as his army is out fighting, David is at home enjoying the benefits of his success. (laughs) And as as he is enjoying his success, he notices a woman who is bathing on the top of a house close enough that he can observe, and he becomes covetous and lustful. And he sends for her, her name is Bathsheba, and he commits adultery with her. It's not hard to figure out what was going on in David's mind at that moment. You might be aware that David had by this time multiple wives, but for whatever reason, those wives were not good enough. He wanted this woman as well. It's the nature of sin, isn't it? We never have quite enough. And David experiences precisely that, and he goes and takes what he desires. Additionally, it is likely in those chapters, he believes that he has gotten away with it. Bathsheba's husband is away at war. He would never find out, perhaps David says to himself. In fact, we find out from the passage that David thinks to himself, no harm, no foul. I've simply used my power in a way to get me what I want. To be honest with you, David has not thought very much about who he has already offended. Certainly, he has sinned against Bathsheba. We do not read anywhere that Bathsheba was forced to be intimate with him against her will. But again, David was king. What was she going to say? No. (laughs) David had the power and she had none. David has also sinned against Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. The relationship between Bathsheba and Uriah, that intimate sexual relationship, was meant for the two of them alone, not for a third party. But we do not read that David is grieved by a sin against Bathsheba or that he is grieved against his sin, his sin rather, against Uriah. And to be sure, David has even sinned against his own body, the New Testament explains later. But he is not grieved by the sin against his own body. Again, there is no sense, as we work through chapters 11 and 12, that David is grieved by any of this. Rather, he is content in the sense that he has gotten away with it. Smile. 
There's certainly times in your own life when that is exactly what you think you've done. Isn't it true? But in stage number two of the story in those chapters comes the cold sweat news. In 2 Samuel 11 verse 6 that Bathsheba is pregnant. Against all odds, it seems, their rendezvous has resulted in a child. Can you imagine what's going through David's mind now? We read that he sets a plan in motion to cover up what he has done. Nothing is said about repentance, confession, regret. All that he is trying to do is to get out from under the problem. So he sends for Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, and urges him to go home. He says, go home, eat and drink and be with your wife. He is telling him explicitly, you've been gone for a long time. Go be intimate with your wife. But we find out that Uriah is too committed to the cause of the kingdom of Israel. So instead of going home to his wife to enjoy time with his wife, he spends the night sleeping with the servants at David's court. But still David persists. Now he makes Uriah drunk, hoping that when Uriah isn't fully with himself, he'll go home and be with his wife. But Uriah still refuses. And then David, it seems, has little choice left. He now sends Uriah not back home, but back to the front. He can't cover for the pregnancy by having Uriah home. So David must at least take the husband out of the picture. So he sends Uriah back, carrying with him. Think of the calloused heart that does this. Carrying back with him his own death warrant. He says to the commander, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is worse so that when the fighting flares up, Uriah is sure to die. And that's exactly what happens. Just think for a moment about what's going on in David's heart and mind when this occurs. Have you never had that time where you are caught? You've done everything in your power to try to escape, and the moment comes when you feel trapped. You've tried to wiggle this way and that way. You've done your best to escape. But now the Lord has you, and you are trapped. But in David's mind, instead of confessing, he goes to the ultimate length. He has not considered who he is sinning against, Bathsheba, Uriah, even his own body. Instead, he doubles down by murdering Uriah. And at the end of chapter 11, 2 Samuel, we read that nearly everything seems right now. Uriah is dead, and David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And David seems set. Except in stage three of this story, there's one other thing. The very end of chapter 11, verse 27, this is the last thing we read. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Of all the crazy things in this story, the story that lies behind Psalm 51, in all of chapter 11, God is never spoken about until this moment. It's a wonderful way of the writer telling the story 
to indicate to us in David's mind the Lord does not matter. David has done his own thing and he has covered up so well that the Lord doesn't matter. He has avoided the implication of his sin against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against a whole host of others. He has figured out how to deal with them all. And maybe he felt a little ashamed in his own heart. Maybe that cold sweat broke out when you feel like you're trapped. But he has done everything in his power to make it right. There's only one thing left, and it is this. David has not considered the Lord. He's not considered what God thought. He hasn't considered what God is going to do. And that's the fourth stage of this incredible story as it unfolds in chapter 12. Because God Himself comes to speak to David in the person of the prophet Nathan. Nathan comes to tell a compelling story to David. He says, King David, let's imagine, would you? Imagine with me how you would feel if you found out that someone in your kingdom took a poor man's only lamb, a lamb that they loved and cared for and treated as their own. Kids, imagine an animal that you felt like was your very own, maybe your own cat, maybe a puppy dog, maybe it's even a rabbit of all crazy things, and you have treated this animal like your very own, you have loved it and taken care of it, and along comes your neighbor and says, you know what, I want that animal, and it takes, your neighbor takes that animal for their own and kills it. I'm smiling, I probably shouldn't be. It's a horrible thing. And in this story, it's doubly bad because the person who took the lamb could have used their own lamb for a stranger who came to stay. So it wasn't out of lack that they took someone else's lamb. It was simply out of cruelty. Wouldn't you be indignant? Wouldn't you cry out, not fair, that's not just, it's not right. Things must be set back. And we read in chapter 12, that's exactly what David says. He says, and I quote, as the Lord lives, the one who did this, you know what he says? The one who did this deserves to die. And as the words are still hanging there in the air, You have that moment. I don't mean to make light of this, but my wife and I have rediscovered the joys of Columbo. And every time you watch, he gets to this point after an hour and 15 minutes where the person who feels like they've gotten away with everything, he leads that person into the trap and then springs the trap, and you can see in their face the moment at which they realize they have been caught. David's been caught. You must think in your mind, David's saying that man deserves to die, and at the moment those words are hanging in the air, David thinks to himself, oh my word, what did I just say? That's me. I have offended the Lord. And Nathan says, it's true. David, you are the man. The prophet, coming on behalf of the Lord, is pointed right to the heart of David and what he has done. 
And it says in verse 7 of chapter 12, Thus says the Lord, the God of all Israel, the God who knows all things, why, David, have you done what is evil in His sight? If you're following along with me, what is very, very clear in Nathan's story is not the offense, first of all, against Bathsheba or Uriah or David against his own body. Nathan is not satisfied until David understands he has offended God. It is in the sight of God that David has sinned. He has not merely committed adultery. He has not merely murdered, as terrible as that sounds. But he has stood before the God of the universe and in his own heart stuck his finger in the nose of God and said, and I will get away with this until God comes through Nathan and says, no, you won't. And then it is in chapter 51, verse 4, in the verse I read for you a little while ago, as David reflects on the real horror of what he had done, in the middle of writing this song, imagine this, a song intended to be sung by Israel for generations to come. He says in verse 4, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David is not saying that he has not offended Bathsheba or Uriah or really the nation of Israel. He's not saying that those people don't matter. He is saying it is as though, and this is what you must wrestle with, all of those ways that you have sought to escape the implication of your sin, in the end, who do you stand before? It is God. It's God that you stand before. It is in all of our hearts, my friends, to think about our offense as something less than it is. We want to avoid acknowledging what we have sinned in doing, and especially against whom we have sinned in order to minimize what we have done. Is that not true? If you're parents, you see this happening. If you're a child, you know that's exactly what we do. If you're an adult, we think we're more crafty with it. But aren't the things that bother us the most the things that other people do that we struggle with? And yet we are so willing to excuse ourselves and to make sure that other person pays. If it isn't in actuality, at least in our heart, they are paying a heavy price for having offended me. But when we make it only our sin against other people... We make a giant mistake. When we think, as David did, that our sin is only against other people, we minimize what we have done. There is no doubt, as is revealed in this story, that our sins have implications for other people. Certainly did for Bathsheba and Uriah and the, and the nation of Israel as a whole. If I become angry with one of my children, there's no doubt that my anger harms them. If I am dishonest with my wife, it harms her. She has a right not to trust me. If I take advantage of a friend, he has the right not to stay my friend, or at least to not stay friends in the same way. But as long as your sin is primarily a matter between you and someone else, that sin, my friend, is not that serious. It is an interpersonal problem. We use, even use that language. 
I can always point to what the other person has done. (laughs) Can you not? If he wouldn't have said that, if she wouldn't have given me that look, if there wasn't this history between us, I can say to myself, if my son did not say those words to me yesterday, I wouldn't be angry with him today. If my wife wasn't always complaining about something I did, truth be told, she doesn't. But I can say in my heart, if my wife was nicer to me, I'd be nicer to her. If my friend would just do what I wanted him to do, I wouldn't have to be that way toward him. I rationalize my sin, and it's not all that bad. But here's the thing. And pause for just a moment and listen to this carefully. If it is true in David's words, and you can say in your own heart against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, it is at that moment that excuses disappear, do they not? God has done nothing to you that deserves your rebellion. Nothing. God has at every moment, including in this day, uh, treated you with such love and kindness. No matter how much you search from top to bottom, left to right, look your whole life over. There is never a reason that God has given you that you have a right to rebel against Him. And I want you to be able to say with David, along with me tonight, against you, God, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Can you say that? As much as you have grieved others by your sin, can you be heartbroken before the Lord because you have offended the God, the holy God of the universe? I would urge you to take just a moment to think about how you tend to cover up and how to make excuses, how you are more offended when others sin against you than when you sin, and how you tend to minimize your own offenses. But then think for just a moment about that one sin that you have committed recently. It's not hard to imagine. Just think for a moment, even over this past day, about a sin that you have committed. Think about it. Be honest about it. Think about the time when you were concerned about the way that other people thought about you when you reacted in anger. In that moment where you moved to deep repentance... Were you moved to seeing yourself before a holy God? Did you see your offense is not merely against another person, but against a holy Creator who has given you all that you have, who holds you and keeps you and supplies everything that you need, and and yet you have offended Him? Can you say with the prodigal son in Luke 15, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. What I'm saying to you, my friend, and I'm saying this with as much kindness and gentleness as I can, because it really is God's kindness to you that you would see this. If you see that your sin is primarily against God, the depth of your sin, the height of your offense, if you will see that it is against God Himself, then you will see your sin for exactly what it is. So let me ask you tonight, What is God's response to the stink of your sin? What is God's response to the offensiveness of your actions, to the horror of your rebellion? 
David answers that in the second half of verse 4 when he says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What is David saying? He is saying, first of all, that God is right to condemn. He doubles down. To give you a slightly different translation, he says, so that you, God, are in the right when you speak and blameless in giving judgment. The reason I want to give you that alternative translation is very simple. David is not saying that his sin makes God justified in his words and blameless when he judges alone. What he is saying is that God, God's character is revealed in his response to David's sin. God's character is blameless. David is blunt in saying, God, you are right when you speak about my sin. You are right when, you, when I say, I have offended you, and I've done what was wrong to you. That, God is saying, is exactly right. We have offended God in exactly the way that David has confessed. David is saying it's like this with God. When he sees our sin, he says it is wrong. And I will not object because I see that God has a right to say it. It is true. God can call my sin for what it is, and I will not resist. Even further, when God judges our sin, He is blameless in doing so. You cannot stand before God now or in eternity as God judges you for what you have done and say, listen, God, it does not matter. It is not that serious. It is something you should just look by. David says, no, when you understand, my friend, that you have offended the holy God of the universe, then God is right to say, you have offended me. And God is right to judge us as offenders. That, David says, is God's right. Now, maybe if you've listened to this sermon, you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, Pastor, you've gone a long way from the question for tonight, right? The question was supposed to be, what if I'm struggling with assurance? And you just given me a whole sermon on verse 4 saying, I should take my sin seriously. Is that about right? Is that what you've heard? That's what I intended to do, so we're about in the right spot then, I hope. Because what I'm telling you tonight is that if you hope to find assurance... And the primary reason, not the only reason again, but the primary reason why we lack that assurance is because of our sin, then what is necessary for that assurance to come back is to understand the seriousness of what we have done. Let me explain to you why that's so important. As long as we minimize our sin, we will not see how that sin separates us from God. But when we recognize the seriousness of that sin and the offense it is against the God of the universe, it will drive us. No, let me put it more forcefully. You will see there is no other way to be made right with this God of the universe, this holy, just, good God who has every right to say about your sin, it stinks to high heaven and I will punish you for eternity because of what you have done. When you see the offenses against him, you will have to ask yourself this question, where do I go? What can I do? What's the answer to all of this? Because if you minimize your sin, what you end up doing is not also seeking the place for help. 
Or if I can say it slightly differently, when you minimize your sin, you're going to struggle with assurance because you're never going to the place where assurance can be found. I want you to see that there's something else about God's character that is revealed by His holiness. If what David says is that we have no excuse for our sin, if we are completely guilty before God, there's nothing in us that would justify our rebellion. The only way that we will be restored is this. If God Himself acts. That's the only way out. There is no other. You can try by just being a better person. Have you ever reasoned like that? You've done what is wrong, you say in your heart, that's the last time. I would love to see a show of hands. I'm not going to ask you, actually. If you have this sin or two that you struggle with, and you struggle with it, and you know it's wrong, and then you say in your heart, this is the last time, God, I promise, I really promise this last time. Maybe you don't remember the last times I promised, but this time it's for sure. And maybe you justify that in your heart by saying, because I'm really serious this time and I'm going to resist, God's going to have to accept me back because I'm really trying hard this time. And in the cycle of sin, what comes next? Can you tell me? It's falling into that sin again. And the disappointment, maybe even the despair that comes from realizing that your heartfelt promise, and I believe you, my friend, that you really made that promise with sincerity. I've done that myself. Your sincerity is not enough. It could not take it away. It could not make it better. And so that when David says in Psalm 51 verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, He is encouraging us. He is compelling us. If David were here, he'd be telling you with everything that is in you, take your sin seriously that you will see your only hope is in the covering of Jesus Christ. And unlike the solution that you might offer to God, that is, God, I'm going to stop. I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to be a better person from now on. And reasoning in your mind that that ought to be enough and struggling because you know it's really not. But you try. You tell yourself again, keep at it. Maybe eventually it'll feel all right. What David is telling you to do is to throw away your ill-intended hope and to turn to Jesus alone. Because as much as it might seem to you tonight that that's way too easy, what the Bible says is when you turn to Jesus, our Savior is so kind and so tender-hearted that He says with sincerity words that have resonated through the ages, Come to me, all you who are weary laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in your heart, And you will find rest for your souls. Isn't that what you're seeking? That rest, that peace. It's not going to (laughs) come through all the other ways that you seek to find it. Your assurance, your confidence that your sin is taken care of won't come through bargaining with God, ignoring it, pretending like it'll be better in the future. It's going to come in one way and one way alone. It'll come in the person, the work of Jesus Christ. 
And even though David came many, many years before Christ came into this world, the hope that David was seeking is the same hope that the Scriptures offered to you tonight. Your assurance, or should I say your lack of assurance, if it is caused by your sin and a pattern of sin that you see in your life that keeps coming back over and over and over again, you're trying, you're a nice person, everyone else would say so, but you know the rottenness of your own soul. Don't simply try harder, but come to your Savior who welcomes you tonight. Not because you're well put together, not because you've promised to never do it again, although He'll encourage you to turn away. No, that's not, that's not enough. He will make it possible for you to turn away. But He offers you freely and without cost something that no one else in all the world can give, and that is real and genuine forgiveness. It is only when we come to see the depth of our offense that we will see the height of God's action in saving us and find there the hope, really the confidence that we belong to God Himself. Would you join me in praying? Father, as we have walked through verse 4 of Psalm 51, and as we have thought together about David and his offense, we pray, Lord, that the Scriptures would have become alive for us tonight, not because of the words that I have said or the power of the presentation, but because of Your Spirit who has promised to take those truths that are found in the Word and to bring them to our hearts. I pray for each person who is listening, whether here in this building or joining us over the internet, maybe 10 years from now watching a recording of this. Your arm is not shortened, as the Old Testament says. You have the power to save. Maybe some of us even listen to a sermon like this and say, oh, but you don't know where I've been You don't know the sin I've committed, but Lord, you know. And it is the nature of who you are as God that you are greater than our sin. That sin cannot stand before you. And in the powerful death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have overcome all the punishment for our sin. And not just the punishment, but the shame that attaches to it that tonight you welcome us into your presence clothed in Christ and you can assure us you can make make us confident that we belong to you pray that each person who's listening to this tonight that you've brought here by your divine intention would know the truth that David grabbed onto and we look forward someday to being around your throne singing the glorious praise in the person before the person of your Son, who is worthy of all praise that we might ever bring. We pray this in His great name. Amen.